warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. the Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good afternoon, good morning, it's Scott here. It's the first Real Britannia of the new year. We haven't recorded since way, way back in, I think, about October. Stephen, good morning. Can you actually verify that for me? When was the last time we were together? (laughs) Absolutely. We haven't been together for about two months and all sorts of things have happened in the meantime. (laughs) You've been on a holiday, the world's population of popes has halved and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) And we've had had Christmas and New Year, so it's uh, been a been a bit of a time so but this is what we decided we were going to do in advance so here we are yeah and, and the plan was we were going to fill that gap by bringing out episodes that we've got in the bank which we've probably got about six or seven and that never happened either because we did take no. a definite proper break didn't we over that time so well I did but you've been <laughs> up to other things I mean right. let's face it you've decided oh having six shows or whatever it is you do isn't <laughs> enough I'll add another one in that's two hours every week I'll do that shall I yeah you've this... added to, added to your workload rather than lessened it in that time frame this is why you're the perfect co-host because you plug my other shows without me asking or paying you or prompting you in any way <laughs> ladies and gentlemen it's the rainbow valley 60s chart show every sunday on mixed cloud there we go <laughs> we're in the 60s today with real britannia it's part of the kitchen sink progression as we what are we calling it because it isn't all just kitchen sink dramas is it we're, we're choosing movies that were influenced by or sort of like influenced the kitchen sink dramas aren't we and that's yeah. sort of genre as such it's you know that kitchen sink and angry young man i mean this is is more dirty old man than, than <laughs> young man but it's that social realism and from a, a certain point of view of the change of uh, in social mores as well as how the times were changing i mean this was mm-hmm. the 60s coming in with the most permissive society but also the end of empire which we'll discuss and all these kind of things how attitudes were changed in and people who been born in the war was suddenly um their time was coming so that is the the social realism or kitchen sink there's no term that actually covers all of them i don't think but this fits in in a different way i think to a lot of the other ones but it still does fit it ticks so many of the boxes of what a textbook kitchen sink movie is is generally regarded as you know we've got directed by tony richardson screenplay by john osborne and you've got alan bates and albert finney lurking in in there somewhere as well you know and it's, it's, it's a perfect example. On a face value, you think, why is this included in the Angry Young Man Kitchen Sink genre? But within about five, ten minutes, you, you, you get it. You're like, yeah, this actually is a perfect fit. We've got, we've got dingy bedsits. We've got the lot, haven't we, in this? So, yeah. OK, it's The Entertainer. It's 1960. And as you quite rightly said, 1960, the Lady Chatley trial, the birth of the permissive age and the birth of the teenager a few years before. It's it's all there. It's a perfect example of where the kitchen sink dramas are progressing. So let's take a quick break. We'll be back after this. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight is a great occasion for one of our most distinguished members. I believe he's just had very good news about someone in his family, and I'm sure you'll all want to join with me in offering heartiest congratulations and in drinking his health. Billy Rice! And now I'm going to ask him to do us the honour to step up here and sing us some of his favourite songs. No, no, I don't want to. The so-called government we've got today are cutting down expenses, so they say, to save a few odd million, more or less. They want to scrap the Navy, do they? Yes! 
we know they're broke. Well, I'm broke. So are you broke. We're all broke. As we were when Bolin broke, first sailed away. But we've got the men, we've got the ships. What's more, we've got the water. And it's just as wet as in Lord Nelson's day. So don't let us have the British Navy. Don't let them slap on the other wall. Why do you care if the income tax is no more in the pound? We can know it had to go with them before. Let Winston say ta-ta to all the ta-tas he adores. But not ta-ta to all the tars that guard our English shores. Let them scrap his high hats, squash hats, straw hats, and the laws. But they must submit the scrap. No! They must submit the scrap. No! They must submit the scrap. The British the entertainer from 1960 directed as we said by tony richardson written by john osborne and nigel neal two very familiar names to this podcast yes starring Lawrence olivier brenda de Banzi, roger livesey's in there joan plowright alan bates and albert finney as i said we got daniel massey shirley anfield this cast list is amazing thora heard charles gray which i forgot was in this but yeah yeah We'll mention all of these when we get to the Hall of Fame, no doubt. As it was your selection for this week, mate, can you give us your synopsis, which I always look forward to? Veteran vaudevillians, second-rate schemes to stay in showbiz, fail as family flounders with debt, drinking, death and maybe divorce. Wonderful. <laughs> that sort of gives it away. But I don't think this is very familiar to people, this movie, as, say, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning or Taste of Honey or all those that we're really familiar with. I'm going to read you the synopsis from the back of the Blu-ray because that's how I watched it yesterday. It's a wonderful BFI Blu-ray with lots of extras and a crystal clear picture. It's a great way to watch it yesterday. Deep breath. Laurence Olivier plays Archie Rice, a mediocre music hall artist upholding a dying tradition in an English seaside town. Tony Richardson originally directed Olivier's Rice at the Royal Court Theatre production and did so again in this, his second feature. The seedy world which Archie Rice occupies could be seen to represent the general malaise of post-war Britain. This is exactly what you were hinting at here, mate. Previously explored by Osborne in his play Look Back in Anger. Adapted for the screen by Nigel Neal in 1959, Neal subsequently went on to co-write The Entertainer with Osborne. Olivier is supported by a superb cast, including a young Alan Bates as his son, Roger Livesey as his kindly, now retired, always more talented and popular father, and Joan Plowright as his daughter. This remarkable cast also features Daniel Massey, Shirley Anfield, Thora Heard and Charles Gray. Olivier's portrayal of a man coming undone at the seams and revealing the emptiness inside is a revelation. It changed the public's perception of him, introducing him to a new young audience and garnered him yet another oscar nomination i think this is quite an important movie mate don't you this is like at the turning point of everything isn't it in 1960 and just the whole attitudes and what's reflected in this 90 minutes is is just a perfect snapshot isn't it yeah the important thing with this is that olivier had actually gone and asked for this to be written as a part for him really Mm. and that he had seen the change that was happening and almost reminiscent of the actual story itself you can be left behind or you can move with the times yeah and he decided to embrace it and unlike his contemporaries like uh, Gielgud and Richardson and, uh, and a few others that had, didn't do that they stuck to their previous way of doing things and their previous types of plays they were involved in etc yeah. he actually got involved and, and subsequent to this got further involved with all sorts of theatre projects and being directors of various groups and mm-hmm. actual, actual physical theatres like like the uh, Young Vic to make sure that he was actually part of this wave because uh, he could recognise the change happening. He kept himself relevant um, or brought himself back. Certainly led to him remaining sort of legendary and being able to be contemporary at the same mm. time, which the others didn't manage to do, uh, which is reflective of, of the film, really, which I suppose is why in some ways he felt apparently that there was uh, a kinship for the character of Archie Rice because of the fact that, you know, it was facing the decline of the old way and and the new way coming in. And obviously Archie as a character isn't embracing the new, but uh, Olivier himself did. So it's very important in that way as far as the commentary and how it's positioned for his career, as well as 
the change in theatre as well as film. Yeah, but I think a few years later, he actually creates the National Theatre, doesn't he, the early 60s, mm. uh, if it hasn't already happened at this point. And I read somewhere, I think, that after completing the role, Olivier said he, he felt like a modern actor again, which is exactly what you were saying there. You know, he's, he's, he gets this new sort of like second wind. He gets this breath of life back into him. And it's like recognising the changes, recognising that the 60s are going to be something a little bit special. And you've either got to bend with the wind or, or you're going to break, aren't you? And that's exactly what he does. And it just leads on to, you know, over the next 10 years, the next 15 years, he's, he's like in his 40s now, you know, so he's recognising that he's not going to be playing those youthful leading roles anymore. But it leads nicely into things like when we get to the 70s and he does things like Marathon Man and the boys from Brazil, where he just has a bit of fun. And this is the beginning of that. It's the second era of Olivier, I think. It's well, quite he, fair to say. he also follows this up um, not long after this, I, I think, was Bunny Lake. And, and, he did, and that, which, we've reviewed that, didn't we? Yes. Yeah, so which, got... again, was him. Uh, at the time, we were sort of positioning it, I think, when we reviewed it, that it was a bit more that he was just doing something to enjoy himself. And, and Yeah. Sort of in some ways ham it up but he wasn't but I think no that was again him taking on the versatility of cinema as it was and trying out new things and not being snobbish and saying I'm not gonna do that because I'm an actor um, <laughs> which some of us as I say his contemporaries I think some of them took longer to embrace it Gilgood did probably took him about 10 years before he eventually did start <laughs> doing plays that were more modern so and I think it does show that uh, Olivier for all the stature of him being you know a, a knight of the realm and a lord and having been Shakespearean actor and all this kind of stuff the reality was that he was a versatile actor and he wanted to stay contemporary and that's what he he did in this he wasn't just old world he was embracing the new yeah i'm just looking at the filmography for the 60s and it's quite sparse you know there's there's one movie a year two possibly so obviously he's focusing on stage. his new wife <laughs> yeah, joan plowright exactly because he marries her not long after this doesn't he because it's uh he's, he's still married to vivian lee at this point isn't he i think it's, it's this still technically married but technically, i think they were, yeah. they were both doing that both doing their <laughs> own thing as it were but the um the movie career in the 60s it's almost He's brought on board to certain movies because of his iconic status, because this is the same year as Spartacus. So he appears in Spartacus, big Hollywood epic. Then we get some things like Uncle Vanya, that's a TV movie. He's narrating a, uh, a TV version of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, no, it's the, I think it's the Romeo and Juliet that um, Olivia Hussey was in, 1968. Yeah, it must be. So he's the narrator on that. Then you've got things like Oh, What a Lovely War at the late 60s, you know, and Battle of Britain, 69, you know, cameo appearances almost. So he's focusing more on the stage career, but then you get Bunny Lake in 1965 I really enjoy, I couldn't think of anybody else to have played the role it just seemed perfect this is he washed up I don't, I don't think washed up is the right sort of way of describing Archie Rice he's 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 heyday no, way behind him isn't he obviously. well I think I, I think it's more a case of he's not a has-been he's a never was yeah second rate almost isn't it he's it's, it's just never quite hit the peaks that say it, it, it reminds me of almost like a Max Miller type comedian you know because he's billed as the sauciest TV and, and stage comedian uh which was what max miller was sort of uh, quite saucy in his repertoire but you know the disinterest that people just <laughs> you know what it's like on holiday i mean and, and you knowing northern seaside towns i know morecambe's the other mm. side for you is lancashire isn't it and uh, but you know you know what a, how grim sometimes a seaside town can be and the entertainment particularly back then you know when the seaside shows would run for the six weeks and you get the big names you know doing the summer specials and it's almost as if the people are there as a bit of a chore or most as well it's oh it's Archie right oh we'll come in from the cold for a bit and just have a little look and it is quite sad you know but he's battling on and it becomes quite evident that his father as we progress was more popular than he was he was a massive star yeah and it's almost like he's only got where he is on on the name of his father and that yeah. and, and that that kudos that he perhaps wouldn't have even been a second rate he would only have been a third rate if it wasn't for the fact that he's got the family name and as we see part way through the film, there's a, a bit of a dangling of a fish of his father coming out of retirement in order yeah. to, to help his own career. That just shows that level he's at. He's, he's living in the shadow how much he's actually 
conscious of it and how much he actually you know thinks that he is better than he, he is is um probably debatable but certainly he's not a, a top flight and as you said there's a scene where there's a number of people walking past the the front of the theatre and there's people going oh he's not been on tv who's he yeah who is he they just don't recognize him but he's, he's he's got this massive billboard out the front with his his face he's a huge thing yeah. in his head and shoulders that he's obviously financed because it becomes evident that you know the rest of the cast have not been paid ticket sales are not that good he hasn't got the money to fund this potential second show that he wants to do at the winter gardens and it's just living from hand to mouth he's, he hasn't paid tax in 20 years you know he, he he jumps at every knock at the door in case it's the tax man or police come to arrest him and it's it it does become quite seedy in that respect and i like the fact that you said um in your introduction that it's not so much angry young man as dirty young man as well a dirty old man you know <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's it is that he that there's a point in the film not as a spoiler but unfortunately it, he gets drafted in as the stand-in not even mm. the first choice but as the stand-in he's the second choice to be the announcer the, the compare at, uh, at a beauty contest and then he ends up as you know a dirty old man he ends up coming on to and sleeping with not the winner but the second Shirley <laughs> um, Ann yeah. Field isn't it yeah who, who she'll appear in lots of things um subsequent I mean she was in a lot of this genre of, of stuff anyway but yes but yeah and then you know it Subsequently, obviously, as a you know, dirty old man, he's you know not only sleeps with her, but which is not the first time he's done this kind of thing. But because we find out that's how he ended up with his second wife, because his first wife caught him, you know, with her. But mm. yeah, and I mean, there's obviously the the major age gap, um, which you know is reflective of of himself as a um, <laughs> as in reality of Laurence Olivier because of Absolutely. the fact that jo- Joan Plowright, who plays his daughter in this film, there's there's a gap of 25 years between them. I think it is, um, yeah. which you know would be equivalent to to me, um, you know, marrying a, a 20 year old or or you marrying a 40 year old. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I knew it would come along at some point. The jibe. I knew it would come along. <laughs> but, it's, it, it, but it's um, you know, it's, as you said, it's that second rateness that he's not able to aspire to anything higher, and it, and he's dodging debt collections, he's dodging mm. the tax man, and yet on the other side, he's trying to get attention for himself, which is a, yeah. a contradiction. Again, going back to what I just said about the commentary about oh, he's not been on TV. I mean, this is a, another um, sign of the times that that was where people's reputation in vaudeville or, or on the stage was no longer where the reputations were being built and where people were looking for their entertainment anymore it was in, you know tv was coming in now since the coronation mm. and if you hadn't been on tv at that point that was you been a nobody you wouldn't um, be known yeah yeah exactly. and 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 that you know that i think was clever to to insert that bit in but it very much is that his aspirations are, are well beyond what he's is able to achieve and the fact that he's ignoring all sorts of other things in order to to pursue this fantasy almost mm. And how much he realises it's a fantasy and how much he, you know, he's um, he, he does actually take it on board. I don't know. Yeah. He does comment about being dead behind the eyes. And so therefore, you know, not about and singing the song about why should I care? And isn't that, that is something reflective. as well? Because, yeah, because he says, like, he's performing to a dead audience and he's dead behind the eyes as well. You know, th- there's this whole really somber tone to it. You know, it- is he aware that he is living hand to mouth and he's fighting a losing battle that's eventually going to come crashing down around him eventually if he carries on doing what he's doing. I mean, this whole affair with Shirley Ann Field is he's- all right. Yes. It's, partly the sexual side of things but it's mainly the financial because he finds out that her mother Thora Heard and her father are quite well off yeah and and they agreed to finance this new venture which I think was the Winter Gardens thing that he had planned providing there's a place in the show for Shirley Ann Field yeah so, so it all sort of links together you know it's like all oh, right because it's, it's just like right I don't care what 
hurt or upset this is going to cause my family. Hopefully they're not going to catch me anyway. But at the end of the day, I've got my dream. I've got my, my, my second show. You know, I can go on to the Winter Gardens and perform there. And it does start to come crashing down because he gets caught out by Joan Plowright in, a, in an amazing scene in the, um, is it the restaurant where she sees them in the mirror? It's the cafe yes. or something, isn't it? He sees them kissing on the doorstep. But it's only because there's a mirror there and she can actually see them behind her. And it's a really superbly written character that, you know, I mean, I, I haven't seen the stage production. I was looking at the synopsis for the stage production and it's, it tends to focus more on the family relationships around him. There's a lot more focus on the sons and daughters and in between each act, there's a lot of his stage show. You know, he just does the stage show. Uh, and there are some differences in, in the plot. I don't think it focuses too much on the on the affair. You know, it's, it's just he mentions it in conversation that he's seeing somebody, I think it says, in the in the stage production. But the way this has been adapted for the screen, where the focus is totally on Archie Rice, it really gives you the insight of then of how it affects the other people surrounding him. We have to mention, for example, Albert Finney. This is Albert Finney's film debut. Yeah. He's not in it very long. Three, four minutes at the most. You know, a couple of lines here and there. Yeah. Goes off to Suez. That's another thing. So this isn't actually set in the 60s. This is set four years before, isn't it? In, in 56. Yes. So this isn't a 60s set movie, even though it was released in 1960. And spoilers, I'm sorry, we're going to have to say, but Albert Finney gets killed while he's out there. I mean, he gets he gets captured and then there's the whole um, worry over him being captured and w- what's going to happen with him and whether the torture and whether he survives and et cetera, because this is the first experience really of, although there was the, the Korean, um, this is the first experience of people seeing it on uh, close to home. So they're yeah. worried about him having been captured. Then they worry about because he's released um, from that capture, they're, they're then planning on his return and there's a certain amount of weirdly celebrity around that because he gets asked about it does Archie uh, about his surname and oh that's the same name as that soldier that's just been yeah um, captured he brushes it off without actually acknowledging that that is his son which you could if you were wanting attention purely for attention set then you would grasp upon that which we know a lot of people who are attention seekers or whatever but he's not interested in attention when that is attention because of somebody else he's only wanting attention because of him so if it's attention that's reflecting on him from his son or even from his dad he's not interested he tries to bring it back to him and it, it that as a backdrop of what's going on and him ignoring him some incredibly important things going on in his family it does set the tone for who he is yeah he's, he's too busy just just planning ahead and, and he's so self-centered that he doesn't realize that everything is just collapsing around him but to him it's just like well no i'm going forward i'm doing this i'm going to be performing here i'm going to be a big star again and, and, and meanwhile you know he's got a dead son he doesn't really he's, he's got another son alan bates who's totally fixated with him alan bates in alan bates eyes he can do no wrong joan plowright can see through him basically she's aware of his previous philandering that's right isn't it i'm sure because when well she's she's aware of so just to an extent she's aware that he has you know dallied with young actresses in order mm. to you know same as what he does with the the beauty contest but what she isn't aware of is that the reason why her mother left him was because she'd caught him with the the woman who's her stepmother and which is and as a character i mean she's she's the one that shows the most affection towards the stepmother and that doesn't stop just because she's that piece of information has been revealed she doesn't suddenly just see um her stepmother as being the villain of the piece and somebody to be hating at that point she still just carries on you know being lovely to her yeah. and supportive of her in the face of her father not being, she almost sort of spoils his plans, but she is the catalyst for somebody else doing so. I don't want to go too much into the characters because mm. I know we've got the Hall of Fame coming up, and I want to mention a few things about Brenda DeBanzi, Roger Livesey in particular, and, and Alan Bates, Joan Plowright, and I know a lot of these are going to crop up in the Hall of Fame. This seems like a perfect chance to actually go there, mate. Grab your keys, and we'll see who's going to be inducted or who's made their 97th appearance along with everybody <laughs> else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, Village Hall of Fame. For those that don't know, we, we've been doing this for five, five plus years now, and we had this crazy idea that we were going to create a Hall of Fame that 
somebody appears three times on the podcast, we're going to get them inducted. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it should have been ten or something. I know uh, we we say this every time. I created a monster, but Stephen has got this monster firmly reined in. Uh, please don't lose control of this, mate, because. <laughs> You are doing such a superb job of monitoring who appears, even down to the bit players and cast and crew and even the tea lady. Stephen's on the ball with all of this. So take it away, sir. Master of Ceremonies in the Hall of Fame. Right here. Thank you. Uh, Well, as you've mentioned, we've got normally don't talk about first time appearances for anybody. But this is the first time appearance for Albert Finney, Alan Bates and Joan Plowright. Amazing. Um, which are all people who are recognisable to us, who not so much maybe Joan Plowright, but the others uh, will appear in other things in, mm. in film-wise. She was a lot more um, staged in TV, I think, with Joan Plowright, but still she may uh, crop up and have future appearances. But the people that are having their second appearances, we've got... Sorry, can I just say, even though that's their first appearance here in the Hall of Fame, for all three of them, it's their film debut as well. Not I'm... Joan Plowright. <laughs> yeah, it, it, she it's billed as her it's, debut but she did appear in something previously yeah she, she, but she yeah. did but yeah but the others it was you know and it's quite a special i think that their debuts were in a film of this stature yeah it's uh, amazing with, isn't it with this with this cast that they were around so certainly uh, good for them and led to plenty of other things thankfully for them so yeah sorry about that mate carry on mate with the second That's sorry fine. uh so the second appearance is uh daniel massey who's in in which we serve Gwen Nelson, The Reckoning, uh, Laurence Olivier, it's only his second one, but he was wow. in Bunny Lake, is missing. Yep. Uh, John Osborne, and before we've looked back in anger. Tony Richardson as well was looked back in anger. And then somebody called Jeffrey Tone, or Toon, was Doctor Who and the Daleks, which is a change oh. of tone. Um, <laughs> well, well played, sir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh no, Alan Bates actually isn't, it's not his first one, I don't know why I put it down as his first, okay. it's his third. Ah. Um, he was in uh, Georgie Girl and Whistle Down the Wind. Of course he was, Whistle Down the Wind. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> uh, so, no, it was this that about him it being his first film was, was why it was in my mind. Yep. Uh, Shirley Anfield uh, as well, uh, Peeping Tom and Yielton of the Night. Yes. Charles Gray, Rocky Horror Picture Show and Theatre of Blood. Miriam Carlin, Heavens Above and Room at the Top. We remember in um, Heavens Above with that talk, just talking continue with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. Um, yeah. And uh, Roger Livesey making his, yeah. his uh, appearance in the Hall of Fame properly now with three appearances after Legal Gentleman and Matter of Life and Death. Roger Livesey, only a year older than Laurence Olivier. Yes, I was going to say that. Yes, <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, people um, are playing somebody's parent and uh, our, our child and they're only uh, a year or two apart. Yeah, so. Um, amazing but I think he for some reason he does come across more aged and I don't know if that's mm. makeup or just acting yeah, um, yeah I don't bit know of bit of both so, yeah uh, fourth appearance, we've got Gilbert Davis, who was in uh, Old Range on a Sunday, Passport to Pimlico and Quatermass 2. Thor Heard, yes. uh, fourth appearance. Uh, one good turn, Quatermass, and went the day well. Wow. So, okay. fifth, fifth appearances, we've got Nigel Davenport, who was um, Chariots of Fire, uh, Look Back in Anger, Man for All Seasons, and Peeping Tom. Uncredited uh, in this as the theatre manager. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, also fifth appearance, we've got Nigel Neal. A oh, of course. Man, yeah. Look Back in Anger, Quatermass and Quatermass 2. This must only be Tony Richardson's second then, isn't it, I think, because yes. he hasn't cropped up. It, uh, okay. that was, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, second, as I said, yeah. So yeah. Um, seven appearance, um, that's Jimmy Charters. Man in pub, um, listening to Billy sing, yeah. yes. So, uh, <laughs> Ten Millington plays Gideon's Day, Melody, Passport to Pimlico, The Reckoning, and Revenge of Frankenstein. Wow. Um, we do have somebody making their eighth appearance, which is yep. Jack Sharp. So, yes, Jack Sharp was Ten Millington plays Heaven's Above, Crest File, Look Back in Anger, Man for All Seasons, Night to Remember, and Violent Playground. Also, Man um, in pub, listening to Billy yeah. sing, yes. So another man in pub. Um, now it's not who I'm thinking, or is it? it? Because it I is. didn't I didn't look down the the full cast list until about thirty seconds ago. Mm. And yes. I, he, he's jumped out. He's just punched me in the face. He's there, isn't yes. he? I'm not sure he was the type of person to do that, but uh, <laughs> he was he was a lot more um, in the background and less you know and, uh, yeah. you know in, in you your face. Him? There you go. Did you um, I, I I think I did. Yeah. 
<laughs> Funny enough, before, um, we, before we reveal who it is, I'm sure most people know who it is already. I was watching The Wrong Arm of the Law last night, Peter Sellers. Oh, yes. Bernard Cribbins and, and all those guys. And there's a big sort of like, a, there's a meeting, there's a scene at a meeting where the police and the, and, and the crooks all get, or the crooks all get together. And in the front row is, is Marianne Stone and she has a speaking role. And I, thought, oh, and I was, as much as I was focusing on the, on the lovely Marianne Stone, I was looking amongst all like the 50 or 60 extras at the back to see if this particular person was there. This is what you've made me do now. You, <laughs> you've, you've made me become a different sort of movie watcher. It's like, who is it? Let them, let, I'm sure people know but it's, who is it? it is the the the, the legend uh <laughs> victor harrington how many appearances on the show now it's 15 is he still uh, top he he is now equaled top with guy standeven <laughs> brilliant okay. um so carry on regardless dr no frenzy from wish you would love georgie girl Gideon's Day, Inspector Calls, Crest File, Man Who Haunted Himself, Night to Remember, The Reckoning, The Rebel, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Trouble in Store. Amazing. I couldn't get through that in one breath. Oh, I know, I know. It's, it's going to get to the point where you're not going to be able to rattle off all of them because he's going to hit 20 plus at some so, point. It's just, uh, I, just I'm doing all this from memory. Um <laughs> <laughs> You've got that spreadsheet burned into the back of your brain, haven't you? At the no, moment, uh, no, I have to, I have to write it out because otherwise. I'm not uh, so, um, but yes, it, it, people in there who we recognise from plenty of other things. I mean, you know, not just the whole Victor Harrington thing, but yeah, Nig- Nigel Davenport, we, you know, and Thora Heard, you know, we see them in, in we know them as ca- character actors and actresses from any number of things, whether we've reviewed them on this show or not they are just part of the fabric there and we've yeah. seen them in this we're going oh you know it's Nigel Davenport and it's you know <laughs> and, and not not in the foreground uh, you know okay for I heard had a bit more of a prominent part in in this but isn't it amazing? Still. Isn't it amazing? Sorry to interrupt, but Thora Heard, before I forget, only 20 years before, she was in like Went the Day Well, playing a, a teenage Nazi killer. Yeah. And she's now already become Dowdy Old Mother in that space yes. of 20 years. Already she has become the Thora Heard that, that she will like play for the rest of her life. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's I, I, I think she grew into herself, um, <laughs> for want of a phrase. Um, and I mean, unfortunately, it does kept almost get commented on in, in the film when Sammy Anfield comments when asked whether mm. her mother is uh, as, as beautiful as she is she makes a very dismissive comment of oh no <laughs> no not, not all or something over which you know but yeah she she does slip into um, playing these and you know it's it's like the Hickson as well she well before her time starts playing you know, the old the old woman character and that's yeah. why we've got it in our mind that they were old women for so long they were you know they had a very brief tenure when they were 20 years old and then within two years they were suddenly 60 and they spent the, the next 60 years being 60 well, you know yeah, it's the same with Roger Livesey you know they've already in his 40s or whatever and they're already applying prosthetics to make him become a 60 year old man you know um, we don't mention too much of the backstage boys and girls but you've, you've sort of hit upon Osborne and, and Nigel Neal and all those Nigel guys Neal, yeah. Peter Yates was the assistant director on this who would go on to direct Bullet and The Deep you know those sort of movies Peter Yates we didn't mention Harry Saltzman as producer because it's a Woodfall production isn't it which is Harry Saltzman Harry Saltzman's company that he set up with Tony Richardson and I was just flicking through this list uncredited as a teddy boy Tony Selby which I didn't spot no. and radio newsreader didn't spot this was Richard Baker it's a great mm. cast yeah we, we we mentioned the main ones They're, the top 10 in that cast are, are top 10 actors and actresses from from classic British movies and and three of them debating the Joan Plowright one and making their debut it's an amazing cast yeah um, and you've also got background as uh, well off camera you've got the like of Oswald Morris who yep. doesn't bring to mind immediately a, as a name for, for people but you know you got to consider his history as far as just looking at his CV as it were um, yep. you know the man who never was um, he's got look back in anger and our man in Havana the guns of Navarone Lolita um, you know a, a human bondage life at the top it, it, Oliver yeah, fiddler on the roof. There and goodbye, Mister Mister Chips, and and you know Sleuth involved in that as well. 
Yeah, uh, man with the golden gun. Yeah, it's it's you know he was top flight uh, in that way, and you know not a name that springs to mind immediately. But yeah, that's a, I think possibly some of these people were able to be drawn into it due to the fact that Olivier's name was attached to this. Possibly also the fact that Olivier and the rest of them did it for particularly Olivier for what was relatively a pittance. You know, they didn't take uh, what would normally be their their fees for this because it was for the craft for doing it rather than it being uh, a moneymaker. Obviously, it would have been for some of the smaller parts. It would have been that the money was absolutely emotive and would have been good money for them. But the bigger parts, they were doing it for reduced fee because of the, the, the quality of what they were doing. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that Osborne and Richardson were paid £5,000 each and Olivier was paid 20000 which is not to be sniffed at. But then if he's appearing in Spartacus, you know, this same year, imagine what he would have been paid for that. Certainly more than £20,000, I'm assuming, for that. Um, going back to Oswald Morris, if we were to include him on the Hall of Fame, right? Look at this. Ready? Yeah. The man who never was. Yeah. Look back in anger. Yeah. The, en- the entertainer, the guns yeah. of Navarone. Lolita. Yeah. That's five. Just yeah. checking there's no others. We haven't done Oliver. We haven't done Scrooge or any of those. Sleuth, six. Yeah. Man who would be king, seven. Seven so far. Seven. Yeah. 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 So maybe, maybe I should add him in now, you know, right. now looking at that. But um, I think he's going to make a, a... Well, he's definitely going to make further appearances because there's a couple of Bond movies amongst other things yeah. as well, mate. So know. I think he's, he's earned his place in retrospect. So, yeah. Um, I don't think it is a situation of him being one of the... Just happened to be the and just happened to be doing a, a job he's obviously got the the skill that he's sought out for and deserves credit for rather than it just being that he's clicking buttons that anybody yeah. could have done and um, which some you know obviously some of the people in the production they weren't doing anything special it just happened to be the right right place right time i think you know there's a, a talent to him that meant he did all those things and therefore deserves recognition from us so i shall i shall add him in in that case yeah, it's, seven, it's just one of those appearances. those ones that we've sort of decided as this has gone on that with the Victor Harringtons and those sort of extras, you know, the supporting cast, we're suddenly realising the importance of the people that we, we're not aware of. It's not the big yeah. names, you know, and this, this was the whole point of the Hall of Fame, or it's suddenly developed into this, that we're finding this out now. And I love it. I, I wouldn't have known Oswald Morris was responsible for all of those movies or was involved in all of those movies unless we just looked it up just then. So, yeah, please include him on there because he's, he's certainly going to crop up in the future. As we start winding this down, I just wanted to go back to the um, the beauty contest thing that Olivier sort of roped in as, as a second choice. And I had to write this down. There's, you know, when they're announcing the contestants, basically, and it's, it's one of those old old fashioned things we don't see anymore. You know, obviously, we don't see these sort of beauty contests anymore. And there was a contestant called Miss Shelley Lawrence. And I had to write this down. The announcer says, this makes me wonder what Miss Shelley Lawrence got up to. Right. Ready? Listen to this. Miss Shelley Lawrence from Ripham. She likes midnight swimming and dislikes wolves. And her hobby is sailing. <laughs> Well, we've uh, we've rip, we've ripped been um, about forty minutes away from me or half an hour away from me. It's um it's a a more sedate and conservative place, so I think actually I think our current prime minister represents it. Um, he does. <laughs> so, but yes, it, it, there was a couple. There was one of the other ones as well. I can't remember what it was that made me laugh. That there was. Mm. Like so and so doesn't like so and so and the hobbies are and there was two yeah. of them where the hobbies were nothing. There there are yeah. some subtle little bits like that. You know, Miriam Carlin's character, again, fag hanging out of her mouth in this as well. Yeah. Doesn't play a massive part, but as soon as you see her, it's like, ah, oh, it's Miriam Carlin, brilliant. You know you're not gonna go wrong with her. It's just one and of that, those faces you feel comfortable with, isn't it? You know, you know and it's that gonna caustic be a biting back at him from the yeah. you know, literally carping from the sidelines um <laughs> at him about money and about you know looking after himself but the rest of them being screwed and you know all that kind of stuff and then being promised a, a part in the new show and were they yeah. all together in and and some of them going well we were asked to be in the new show so <laughs> um, <laughs> so it you know absolutely and her as a character actress um i did like to see in there because as you say as soon as you see it, you just go, right, I'm going to get something here. Um, yeah. It's going to be a snippet of 30 seconds, but I'm going to get something that's that's going to make me smile. Trying to 
look up now because she was a massive TV star in the rag trade around about this sort of time. And I don't know if it is literally started in the six, like 1960. I'm just checking now because there was the early run of the rag trade in the 60s. Then it got brought back in colour in the 70s. The rag trade on TV started the following year, 1961. Right. And 1961, she has a massive year for movies. She does about five or six movies, including On the Fiddle with Sean Connery. And The Millionaireess this year, which is the Peter Sellers one with Sophia Loren. Remember at the top, she, we've already said she was in. She was in Carver Name with Pride, which I don't remember her being in. She has got a really great CV when you look at it. Fantastic CV. And as you say, one of those real character actresses that you look out for. And when you do spot her, you know you're in for a great movie. You know, you're not, you're not going to do any wrong. So excellent stuff okay let's start summarizing this down a little bit now then mate i mean we've said it's a perfect sort of snapshot of not only where the country was going because it's, it's a bit weird because it's it's made in 1960 but it's set four years before but i think it encapsulates 1960 onwards as well at the same time there's a good indication of where the country's going it's a great indicator of what the entertainment world was like and a perfect example of you know what tired seaside towns look like you know they're they're very tired and run down now but even back then yeah they were starting to sort of lose their appeal it's not quite the advent of the you know the foreign package holiday yet that will take you know a couple of more years to kick in with the cheap flights and all that lot but you've got is Morecambe a, a butlins because you've got the holiday camp there i think Morecambe was yeah it yeah, is, isn't Morecambe it? I think was, most yeah. of this is set in Morecambe, isn't it? Most of this, and then we yeah. get a, a brief glimpse of Blackpool as well at some point. And seaside towns in the winter are the most miserable places in the world. You know, apologies to people that live in seaside towns, but they are—they're horrible in the winter. And this is just an indication of that seaside holiday is not going to be a thing in ten years' time after this movie's made. No, absolutely right. As you've said before, that the sixties didn't kick in January first, nineteen sixty. No, there was a there was a transition and musically you can one or two things that may have occurred before 60 but most of it doesn't kick in until you know later 1960 61 or even 62 yeah but it's the same with these things the cultural shifts um the teenager moving from being a, a new thing to it actually moving on from just being aping what was coming out of the states which was what the the original sort of teddy boy and rock and roll stuff was it started transitioning into more the mod stuff but the culturally there was more money coming into people's pockets that you know rationing had finished people were starting to look further afield and and see the future more the old way of doing things with the going to the the seaside as you know on a beano from some factory uh, which is what a lot of the stuff that there was with, you know, the seaside towns in the north, particularly, it was a busload of, of factory workers. That's it, when you share a bank from a pub. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And that was ending, but it, it it was transitioning away from that, where people were having aspirations of more because there was more possible. And as you say, eventually it became that the package holidays abroad rather than it just being um, the going to the seaside or going to a holiday camp. Um, there was a movement away from that and it did leave the seaside towns which you know, as you said now at the moment they're worse than than they were then very much you know out of season the seaside towns are, are awful really i mean the people yeah. who live there feel that more than anybody else and they you know they are places where there's a higher concentration of drug use and all sorts of things in in those times and this is the inkling of it and the the snapshot of it at the beginning that this is where the the country is heading which yes this is set a few years before 1960 because it was set a year before the 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 play was staged but it was still relevant and still what people were seeing and why people could buy into it seeing it at the cinema because that was contemporary yeah um, rather than yeah. It being you know five years ago so are you absolutely right on all of that mm, the seaside holly was incredibly popular because it was the cheapest option for people to get away for their week every year but it's just an indication as we say of what's going to be happening over the next 10 years it's the beginning of the slide i've just checked it's pontins in morecambe not bartley right. how's this for a bit of bad luck date it opened was August 1939. Second World War broke out <laughs> September the 3rd. And Pontins, this one, apparently it was opened by a Japanese businessman called Harry Kamiya, famous for its 2,000-seat theatre, the SS Berengaria, which was built in 1949 in the style of an ocean liner. I mean, they were huge, weren't they, those holiday camps? They, they had They were, yeah, and, and obviously, that you know, August 39 and then the, the Japanese. Um... <laughs> it's a bizarre story, isn't it? 
they all, you know, they all became quite poignant. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I, I know, you, you know, Skegness and stuff over this mm. side of the, the country with um, Butlins. As you said, that was where it all was, and that's why you had Tommy as a film. Um, yes. The holiday camp in there yep. and stuff, and it was it was it was absolutely a, a cultural thing. It was a um, part of the zeitgeist. But by this point, 1960, people were looking that there's more than that. The same as they were seeing that there was more than some rather tired stage comedian plugging away with the same uh, old jokes and being replaced by television and to some extent also I suppose being replaced by the fact that a new type of comedy had come in I mean you'd already had in in the background some people have been aware of stuff like the goons and things yeah uh, which would have had a ripple effect even if the mums and dads who were were walking past the theatre weren't into that kind of humour though it would have been you know picked up elsewhere Hancock and, and stuff and you've got yeah. you know it, it filters through that this is end of the line as well as end of the pier. Can we agree that this is a worthy inclusion into the kitchen sink angry young man? genre absolutely it creates a, a different perspective on it than i think than i think any of the other ones that are within that genre mm. but it does sit squarely in it i would say still because of the attitude that it has uh, with regards to looking at the change and the decline and the frustration of people wanting more than they're actually getting and yes. having to, to live within decreased circumstances and hand-to-mouth and you're almost you know you can't afford to put the put the, the the lights on and i think there's a comment made about living off scraps from the book bacon scraps um bacon scraps. so um yeah. so i think you know that that dynamic as well with the family and and stuff although it's a different it's not a traditional family setup it still is reflective of the disagreements within families so i think all of this sits squarely and, mm. and does fit and and is worthy to be in so yeah different, different spin isn't it it's a different sort of different angle they've taken with it and it, and it does work as you say i forgot to ask you had you seen this before yes you had yeah um i haven't seen it for probably i haven't watched it for about five years yeah i've only um, watched it the once yeah um and i think i may have watched it once before then but when we started doing this kitchen sink social realism thing i stopped looking at any of the films that are on the list i thought i'm not going to watch them until ah, it, okay. until the, apart from the ones we're not reviewing any ones that we were going to review like this was was highlighted i'm like well i'm not going to watch that until it's the time to watch it they don't want it to me to have watched it three months before and then to watch it again and it and me not give it a proper airing in that way okay excellent okay we're going to take a short break and the next time that you and i are together i believe it's my choice mate isn't it so it is yes i, ha- I have one in mind we'll be back after this and i'll let you know exactly what it is <laughs> Steve and my choice for you next time hopefully we can get Tony along for this I picked a war film and this one is probably when you ask somebody to mention a war film of the 50s from Britain after the Dan Busters this is probably the one they will say next it is starring one of our favourite actors we've, we've, we only reviewed one of his movies not so long ago mate, to be honest Kenneth Moore it was 1956 directed by the great Lewis Gilbert we're going to do Reach for the Sky yeah yeah about time I want to watch it that's the only reason I'm reviewing it I was going to try and watch it over Christmas and I never got time so uh, I haven't seen it for about 20 years and I, I, it's, it's a proper classic British war movie isn't it and a, a, a tale of heroism and courage against the odds so. well make sure you stay sober when you're watching it I don't want you getting legless I'm just leaving that dead silence there <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put in some tumbleweed <laughs> No, it's 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 uh, about time it was Lewis Gilbert again. Um, mm. But you know, 
about time where it, it got an airing and got seen on air. I mean, it's uh, not a, a snapshot. I mean, it's you know, two hours long, but it's um, it's a worthy film. And yeah. hopefully Tony will be able to make it. Um, yes. He loves, he loves a war film. He does he? love a war film, yeah. The great cast again, Muriel Pavlov, Jack Watlin, Eddie Byrne, who we saw recently, and Ronald mm. Adam, all those famous war faces. Sydney, Sydney Taffler. Sydney Taffler's in it, yeah, look at that. Oh my Nigel, God. Nigel Green, Jack Watlin. Yeah. yeah. Can't go wrong. Bit of Nigel Green, definitely. Oh, it's, yeah. It's got the Ripper in it as well. Has it got Michael Ripper? Yeah. Oh, hang on, I'm just going to... I don't yeah. normally look at the supporting cast beforehand, but Michael Goff, Sam Kidd. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Balfour, Trevor Bannister from Are You Being Served? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, There's a big cast list. I do apologise, mate. There is a huge, huge cast list there. No, well, I'll I'll start working it now. Fred Griffiths is in it, so there you go. Uh, Aidan Harrington. There Aiden is a Harrington. Harrington. There is a Harrington. Okay. <laughs> Stringer Davis. Oh, my life. Okay, let's leave it at that. We're going to meet up in a couple of weeks' time. Just want to leave you with one final quote from the entertainer. You've been a good audience. Very good. A very good audience. Let me know where you're working tomorrow night. I'll come and see you. (laughs) Cheers, Dave. See you later, mate. Take care, the end boys we've done our duty we can go now absolute shower a positive shower bon voyage good luck thank you British end up, sir. I'm sick of pains. Stop engines. Stop engines. <laughs>